Welcome to the B&E Podcast with Brandon Colby-Cook and Evan Schulte. Exploring the creative process and finding the balance between artistry and industry. Entirely uncut and unscripted. Hey, uh, Evan, you know what? What? We got a pretty fun topic today. We do. Yeah. Yeah. We do. (laughs) So uh, today's topic is why having everything you want can stifle creativity. Yeah. And we uh, we worked hard on that title. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot uh, there's a lot to kind of comb through with that. There's um, yeah, there's some interesting concepts and ideas uh, to to sort of dive into Mm -hmm. around there. So, so it kind of spurred on, uh, I'll give Evan a little bit of tribute, but he was talking about how movies right now sometimes have a lot of really great visual effects, a lot of great special effects, a lot of great like razzle dazzle kind of imagery and sound, but are kind of, you walk away from the theater and like, yeah, that was entertaining, but I'll never think about it again. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? They're not ex- particularly moving or involving and sometimes they're downright crap. Yeah. But, um, for the most part, you kind of maybe were impressed by the imagery and the sound, but it didn't really kind of have the story or the impact or do something that was all that unique. Like maybe it was just kind of cliche and common. Like you've seen it a lot before. Already. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's something I'm seeing a lot in movies these days where I, you know, and some people might argue that it's because, Oh, well, it's like so many movies have been made. Everything's been done. It's like, I just don't agree with that. I think that, I think like there was a guy back in the day, I don't remember his name, but he's basically considered like the world's biggest idiot because he said he his he's famous for having a quote that we've already learned everything. (laughs) (laughs) We already know everything. We've already learned it all. Yeah. Like that's what he's famous for. Well, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of people who've said (laughs) things that I'm sure in retrospect are like, Oh my God, like Bill Gates said like back in the eighties or something like that about computers that like something like 500 kilobytes is all anybody ever needs. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, uh, like, I don't even, I don't even know, but I mean, it's, it's just like, yeah, maybe at the time for what right. was there. Yeah. But well, and sometimes I think these quotes are also taken a little bit out of context, mm-hmm. but yeah. I think also if they're taken out of context still today, I don't think we should walk around and think that like we're, we're even close to being done. I mean, yeah. I think that's the thing, you know, that's the, one of the big realizations I've had since we've done this podcast. Cause I remember there was a time where you and I thought we might actually run out of stuff to talk about around like art and creativity. Yeah. Like, and that's kind of where, you know, I mean, we must've had somewhat limited perspective about what this is and maybe still some people think that, right. But like, I think we soon discovered, we were like, whoa, there are so many topics and so many areas to dive into that we're probably never, we could do this for our entire life and we'll never run out. Yeah. And sometimes stumbling on something that we've talked about before but finding a new perspective on it, you go a little bit deeper, you find like a new way of shedding some light onto something that just kind of helps, helps it click right. a little bit more. Um, because there are, we, we do keep running into a lot of 
similar things. Like, yeah, we run into si- we run into similar things, but like that balance, the balance that we're trying to find. I mean, balance. Maybe it's really just the balance. Like balance is everywhere, mm-hmm. you know. And there's there's so many different sides to the industry demands and the artistry demands of life. And um, you know, I think uh, you know, just from an industry side of things, it doesn't matter if you're an, an artist, consider yourself an artist, you can be in anything, but you know, I think industry side of like thinking is, you know, buy a house, get a car, have a mortgage or some savings or, you know, figure out kind of like a, um, an action plan in your life so that you're set up, you know, and there's, and that's kind of almost like industry thinking in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. That's kind of like what we're supposed to do to prepare a life and whatever. Yeah. The artistry of life though, whether you're an artist or not is, am I doing something meaningful? Is this fulfilling to me? Uh, are these things that I truly care about? Do they align with my, my values? And am I like maybe making a mark or an impact on the people in my lives in my own life? Am I making memories and things? That's more the artistry of life. Mm-hmm. So what, what I found as we've gone through these many, many talks now is I guess there's 130 talks. You know, what I've discovered is that this is something that it doesn't matter if you're an artist or if you're in industry or anything like this is, this is kind of a topic that is, I think going to be in debate for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And we're just kind of our discussions are really just kind of the tip of the iceberg, but I hope they're like spurring on thought for other people, mm-hmm. you know, so they can kind of think further and go. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really all. If, if we encourage other people to engage in this conversation, to engage with these processes, then, um, then, I mean, I, I say that we've kind of done our job because we're not here to, uh, tell people that this is, this is how it is. Right. Um, we're here to just discuss and explore and, uh, maybe find some wisdoms, uh, and yeah, spur on the conversation. Right. Uh, and encourage people to engage a little bit more in a different way and, and have their own discoveries. Um, yeah, it's much more, I think we, we, we have a much more philosophical approach in the sense that we come at it trying to critically think about these things, but ask more questions and come with curiosity. And I think in some ways you might walk away with this with a little more clarity, but also a few more questions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happens for me. You know, um, when I, when I walk away from this, I have a little more clarity, but I also have a few more questions. And I think that further kind of tells me that like, there really is no end. Like you never want to try to get to like an end point. You always want to kind of see yourself in process and, and, um, you know, embrace curiosity and embrace not having the answer. But I think life is kind of that it's kind of a balance of curiosity and clarity, Yeah, you know, and, and that's kind of in a lot of ways, I think that's what a lot of these podcast episodes are about. Like even the topic today, it's like, well, let's, we're curious about this. Let's go into it. Let's look at it. Let's create some clarity around it, Mm -hmm. but let's not think that we'll come to the answer and that we won't have more curiosity about it afterwards. And that's okay. Cause that will lead to more really great things. Yeah. But not being clear to like, not be curious at all and gain no clarity in life because you're not curious at all, I think is very, very limiting for you as a person. Yeah. So I think, you know, like 
to further our topic, I mean, we're talking about when you don't have what you want or what you think you need or whatever. Yes. That, that spurs on curiosity. It mm-hmm. spurs on questions. Well, what if we did this? What if we tried that? Yeah. You know, is this a way we could do it? And all our options. And then you look at it and you don't necessarily know the next, the right one, but you pick one and then it either works, it doesn't work. And you go, okay, well maybe if we tried this, but everything you try kind of gets you to a new perspective and then you can kind of work through it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this, this one that we've got here, um, now the title says like, is like why having like everything basically. So when you have everything, oh, like all the tools at your disposal in as far as being an artist, whatever you're doing, you have, you know, all the money, all of the technology, all of the, you know, the crew or all of the, you know, the time, the finances, the resources, whatever it's like, you, you have everything at your, at your fingertips. If you're in this situation, um, how, and sometimes we, look at that and say, it's like, Oh, well that would just be, that would be amazing. That would be perfect. And and yeah, there's something amazing about that. But sometimes we make our ability to create conditional upon having resources or having certain resources. And I just don't think that that is the case. Hmm. While certainly it can create new opportunities for you, it doesn't necessarily make, it won't necessarily make your work any more artful or any more creative. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it can do the exact opposite. Yeah. It can take away from, from what actually makes your, your art work so well, you know, what actually allows you to express yourself yeah. and do something that is unknowingly genius. Cause I think the other thing too is like, um, you know, genius is an interesting thing in our, in our society. Like a lot of people think that geniuses know their geniuses or that they're geniuses on purpose. Actually, I think that people are geniuses in life. The, the thing is, is that we don't always have an avenue for everyone to express their genius. Just not mm. everybody is the same kind of genius. Yeah. Some people are great at like math and physics other people are really great at seeing images. Other people are geniuses with sound. You know, there's all sorts of variations of genius, Yeah. but our society doesn't necessarily reward everyone who has a certain kind of genius. Yeah. And I think the thing is, is that, you know, if you pursue rewards and external things your whole life, it's great if you kind of, well, I mean, I don't know if it's great, but it can feel great if you fit with what society wants. But if you don't, it can be kind of like really difficult, you know, yeah. cause not everybody always fits in what is in demand. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at Angelina Jolie, right? Yeah. She had, uh, she had big robust lips or whatever. That was a big thing. Yeah. And before Angelina Jolie, big lips and all of that stuff were kind of, uh, you know, whatever they weren't, uh, apparently they were not like in, they weren't like the, a really attractive feature on a woman. Mm. But after her, uh, that kind of became a thing. So like what, what can happen is when someone is unapologetically owning who they are, what can end up happening is they can 
introduce something to society that all of a sudden becomes trendy and now it kind of becomes a thing. And then after that, many other women were trying to inflate their lips and do all sorts right. of things to kind of match that. Right. And it becomes a series of copying. But I think the thing is, is that I don't think she came into it going, I got really big lips and I'm going to make the world love, you know, or whatever. Yeah. I don't think a lot of the time it works that way. I think it's kind of an accidental kind of thing you stumble into. And just like creativity, you stumble into a lot of your creativity. It's not something you actually, you know, we're consciously aware of until yeah. it's, you know, it's over until we're in the middle of it happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that like, it's also like for me, it's seeing that sometimes, and I know this through my own experience as well, is that sometimes when I have limitations in, in whatever I'm doing and when I'm in a creative process, the limitations actually provide me focus. They kind of give, because like if there's too many options, it can be paralyzing. Hmm. I can just like, I like, there's so many places I can go. There's, there's so many things that I can do that I just don't even know what to do. Right. There's just there, but if I'm given a scenario where it's just like, I have this and this to work with, they go, okay, all right. I have these things to work with. What can I do with that? Mm -hmm. And you learn how to, you start to extract like as much as you can get out of it, you learn how to make the most out of everything. And it, you, and so you have to be more creative. It forces you to be more creative than you might otherwise be. Um, and oftentimes, especially within art or within writing and, and, and storytelling, um, and for yourself in, in filmmaking, those, uh, those limitations open up creative things that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of that might actually be the thing that's perfect for it Mm. there. And for us to say, I think a lot of it has to do with judgment. It's just like, Oh, well, like having to do this as a compromise or it's going to be less than this. It's like, well, that could be the thing that ends up that the thing you thought was a compromise could be something that makes this mm. the special thing that it is. Right. Right. Like there's just, it, I th- I feel like I talk a lot about judgment these days, but like, cause judgment I feel is such, um, an enemy to our art is when we're in the process of creating and we're judging what we're doing or we're judging our situation, our circumstance within that and saying, this is less than this is not ideal. This is not how it should be or how I want it to be. Mm. Um, you're, you're cutting, you're cutting off what could be an extraordinary opportunity that you don't know what the right thing might actually be. But if you actually apply yourself with what you do have, that is where I think 
amazing things happen because you throw yourself into that unknown space where it's like, I don't know how I'm going to do this exactly, but I'm going to figure out a way Mm. how to do this. And the unknown is always where I think true acts of creation occur where something that nobody's ever quite seen before happens and occurs. Mm. So your limitations can become extraordinary opportunities. Your limitations can become something that we get excited about because we can get really focused. We can get really clear and we can come up with something that would be, can be quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think also with limitations, <clears throat> they, they offer an opportunity for something to kind of be special or be unique or be one of a kind, you know? Um, cause if we all had all the resources and we all had everything we wanted, there might, we might be in danger of things starting to become done the right way. Cause it's like, Oh, we'll do it this way. Like this is the way it's done. Yeah. And sometimes when you aren't able to do things the way that it's supposed to be done, quote unquote, yeah. then you, you kind of, you know, you, you use ingenuity, you, you, you get creative, you find ways around it, you know? And so um, you know, I was mentioning this to you earlier is like Reservoir Dogs, which is a really great film. I mean, it's really well written. It's really well put together and all of this. One of the things about Reservoir Dogs that people will forget is that Reservoir Dogs was really just a one location film. Like 80% of yeah. it takes place in the warehouse. And then that extra little bit takes place in like the diner and like, and the there's office like a, and like and a parking lot. Yeah. And the parking Not lot much, and the yeah. bank and then his, his apartment. But those are all just minor, minor scenes compared to what really occurs, which is most of the story occurs in the warehouse. And what, this is the thing that people miss about why that's so great because so much of it occurs in the warehouse because they didn't have the ability to film anything else. You are in such mystery about what happened outside of the warehouse. Yeah. So because you're limited in your perspective, there's, they have to build a world outside of the warehouse that needs to be referred to and mentioned and commented on. And there's, there's a life that's existing outside of this warehouse. And I think sometimes we just take for granted how important those elements are. So like what happens with a lot of these movies is you have a scene and let's say it's a five minute scene. It takes place in a warehouse, but yet it's not like five minutes of the warehouse in reservoir dogs because it's very much just in the warehouse or wherever they're filming. Yeah. But in, because they, they couldn't film it because the way the, the movie was designed to be shot on a lower budget it had to be done in a way where the world existed outside of it, but only could be mentioned and see these limitations actually make reservoir dogs yeah. so great. And some people like still argue that reservoir dogs is Quentin Tarantino's best film. I think it is personally. Yeah. I mean, I mean, some of the other ones are great are for other great. reasons. Yeah. But um, from a story point of view and a character point of view, I actually think it is the best one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's, and, and that's another thing too, is that like when, your work is, is when you have limitations, um, and you've got to get creative, you've also got to get really, you've got to get really clear and you've, you've got to really zero in and focus on the core things that make a great work. Mm. 
you know, like, so with film, it's like, you've got to really focus in on that story. Yeah. You got to really focus. And I'm sure, I don't know how many, you know, sort of technically what Quentin Tarantino had while he's on Reservoir Dogs, but he probably didn't have like a whole ton of like film stuff. Cause he shot that on actual film. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how many cameras he had to work with either at going at once. It was maybe just a couple or one. Cause most, so much of that stuff is like one camera. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and if he shot that on one camera, it's like, that's a limitation. This is like what we're talking about. You know, so often it's just like, well, you know, everybody's got all of this coverage going. It's not to say having lots of coverage, having like three, four cameras going on at once doesn't have its benefits, but it can become, uh, it can become a crutch of sorts as well. Like if somebody's, it can become a situation where you just, you kind of put your guard down, Mm -hmm. you know, you lose your focus a little bit because you're like, well, whatever, if the shot doesn't really work, we've got coverage from a bunch of other places. And it's like, okay, so maybe, yeah, that shot, you know, a shot you had didn't really work and now, but you've got other coverage that covers your ass, but it doesn't mean that you've got great looking shots. Mm -hmm. They might just be kind of like, whatever, there's nothing particularly striking or artful about, you know, how it does end up coming out. Right. But you've got one camera and Reservoir Dogs is an unbelievably well shot film. There's so many great shots in that. Another thing that to poke on, on a little more on Reservoir Dogs here, as far as the limitation, there's the infamous ear, ear scene, yeah. ear chopping scene. Now, you know, they have like a prosthetic and they had some makeup that they did for that. But you never actually see the ear getting cut off. Right. Right. You see him go in to do it. And then the camera actually just pans away and you hear it. Mm. And then it comes back because it's like, and I'm sure that was one of those things that came out of like, well, we can't, we, we don't have good enough like makeup in the budget to do like to actually really show him cutting off this ear yeah, kind of thing. But there's something so extraordinary about the fact that we don't watch it. And then it comes back and you just see him holding this bloody thing in his hand. Right. That's like all limitation stuff. Totally. That ends up being so like effective in a, in a way. Well, that's, you know, that's what, uh, classic horror movies are famous for being so low budget. They couldn't show the monster Mm. and because they didn't show the monster a lot, it became very scary. And then later, um, horror movies became kind of trendy. They picked up bigger budget studios got behind the bigger budget producers. And then they were like, well, we can really show the monster now. And they, they, they kind of bomb and they kind of suck and they're not as good and they're not as scary. And the thing is, is that's the problem is like, now that you have the means to do it, it actually takes away from it in a weird way. Yeah. And I think that there's, um, it's, it's not about don't show anything at all. No, but it's about like, kind of only showing what's necessary. Yes. And the thing is, is that when you don't have a budget, you, you only have that option. So you basically 
live by that. But the thing is, is that just because you have the means and you have the money later, doesn't mean you should abandon that kind of principle. Yeah. And so I think one of the things here is like, you know what, I, I like to kind of identify points. It's something I've been trying to do every podcast. Just like when I see something, it's like, call this thing out. Mm-hmm. But like, if you have the means to like make a movie right now where you can actually do the things you want to do, then I would say, go back and, and, and just imagine you didn't have the means and what would you do? And then decide if you want to use your means to do it. Because I think what, what happens is just because you're capable, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Yeah. You know, and that kind of, that's kind of a rule for life, you know, like, you know, even an ethical thing. It's like, just because you can, doesn't mean you should just cause you can get away yeah. with something just cause you could steal something. And I'm not saying you're stealing. I'm just making kind of a life yeah. parallel, but just because you can take it doesn't mean you should take it just cause you could get away with it and there'd be no consequences and there'd be no problem and no one would ever find out. Doesn't mean you should still do it. Yeah. And so I think film and music, we can talk a little about music are kind of like this. Sometimes we have the means. So we go, well, I have the means, so I should do it. It's like, yeah, no, just cause you have the means doesn't mean you're obligated to do it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say even like, uh, for actors as well, uh, Daniel day Lewis, it said in an interview, he's like that he, part of his process, like to sort of, for him to strip it down uh, to a degree, uh, he, he says he's about the whole thought process is I'm going way beyond the understanding of the character than is required to play the part. And, you know, he's famous for going like the extra mile, like being authentic in like his costuming, being authentic. Like it's, you know, he, he develops all of these things. He puts all of these things together and he says, but in the end, he's like, it's not about me showing all of it. It's not about me putting all of this work that I've done, this, all of this deep understanding that I've developed and put it now, putting it up in front of everybody to show. He's like, it's not about that because it's not about me. It's not about all of that work that I've done, but it's, uh, for him, it creates just sort of a reality for him. But like so often, like an actor will, will do something, they'll develop something. It's like, Oh, and you know, like and it could be something, then they'll show it, you know, yeah. it can be something small, like a, a piece of costume. And it's just like, Oh, I want to make sure I pull this out of my pocket at some time. It's just like, why is it necessary? Mm-hmm. Do you have to pull that out of your pocket? Is there, a, is it that important for the audience to see? No, it's like, maybe you do at some point when it make like where there's a, a an authentic impulse for this thing but otherwise it doesn't have to come out. It could just be sitting in your pocket the whole time. The audience will never know, mm. but it's created a reality for you that just permeates underneath the surface. Right? So there's, um, I really yeah. like, that's a great example. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a fantastic example because I think when you look at Daniel day Lewis and you look at any kind of method acting, I mean, that's pretty much the epitome of what, I think we think of today as like, okay, well you really figured out how to take like method acting, but make it work and not make it indulgent and make it yeah. like something where, um, you know, and, and like him or dislike him, regardless, I think you can always like respect what he's done. And, and I think maybe a lot of our audience maybe even hasn't even seen him. Yeah. They don't know, but he's someone who I think sets a standard across the industry for everybody and everybody, yeah. 
you know, whether they like him or not, we, I think we can all respect his process because it's, it's like that. It's, he's doing it without trying to prove he's doing it. Yeah. He's removed his ego as pretty much as much as you can, yeah. I feel from his process. There's a quote, actually, it says, um, instead of trying to prove your kind, be kind. Mm. It's something like that. It's like, uh, instead of spending all this energy and effort trying to like show that you're a good person or whatever, a kind person or whatever, just be kind. Yeah. And, and so the thing is, is, I think we, when the ego gets in there, the ego wants validation. The ego wants to like, see this work I did, see, see what I am, see me. Like it wants to show, right. It wants to show the little things. And so that's why the ego is like mm-hmm. this very little tricky kind of poisonous thing, especially in art. Yeah. Cause it kind of tries to convince you to like, you know, like you see actors do this, especially newer actors and they, they, they show a little more yeah. and, and it's, and all of a sudden it just robs their performance. It yeah. takes away from it, but they think it's helping in the moment because they're not experienced enough. Yeah. You know, I've, it's a I distrust, mean, you know, yeah, it's I've a done it. I mean, Oh yeah. I think everybody who's acted has at some point overacted a little, if you mm-hmm. haven't, then you never know your line, you know, yeah. you have to kind of like, you kind of have to go a little bit over to kind of yeah. go, yeah, yeah. Okay. When you you're know. trying to show how, you know, how much work you put into it, how, how smart you are, how, you know, whatever it is. And it's, uh, yeah, it, there's a degree to which I feel like as artists, we kind of need to go there to understand it, to understand what that does on a deep level and just be like, Oh, okay. All right. Mm-hmm. What you're talking, talking about reminds me of something I heard years ago. It was like a little sort of anecdote about like a, a kid asking his, his father or something like, Hey dad, like how, how will I know that I've, when I've become a man, you know, how, like, when will I know? And his response is when you have, when you no longer have to prove that you're a man. Oh yeah, that's good. That's when you'll know. Right. Right. And it's just like, it's kind of, the same thing, like this whole thing of trying to prove ourselves. And sometimes I think when that, it, like, cause it is, it's kind of an ego thing. And when that comes into our work, it's like, Oh, I have to do more. There has to be more put into this. And it's so often, it's not about more. It's about less. It's about stripping things away, mm-hmm. you know, because we can cover things that I use this example all the time. And while, when we were coming up with the topic for today, I, I brought it up to you again as well. But George Lucas, I look at George Lucas's early films when he had such limited resources, he had limited budgets. He made terrific films, mm. THX, American Graffiti, the first Star Wars. I mean, especially that first Star Wars where, you know, he, yeah, he was using techniques and stuff like that, that he they'd start to learn from like Kubrick and stuff, which were pretty new techniques at the time, but the technology was primitive, Mm. you know, like he had very limited resources to, to do everything. And star Wars became star Wars, like the iconic thing that it was. And then years and years later, when he goes and he makes the prequels, you know, definitely I'll just say, not as well received, (laughs) highly criticized and not for no reason. Mm -hmm. And I, 
it, I do believe that it's because he kind of had no limitations. He had all of this technology at his disposal. And I think that he kind of relied on his technology to tell his story. I agree with that. And it's just, and they were, they were weaker pieces as a result of it. So that's, it's, it can be a trap. It can be a complete trap to say, it's like, oh yeah, like having everything now, I've got everything that I need to make the picture the way that I originally envisioned it. And the creativity ends up flying out the door. Well, you know, it's interesting because I've been, I've been talking, sorry, just, I'm going to jump this in. You know, there's, uh, I remember Dov Simmons saying this to us in like his weekend film workshop and such a great piece of advice. And it's a thing that's been in the film industry for a long time. But, you know, so often people say, we'll fix it in post Mm. and just being like, no, (laughs) yeah, like you're not going to fix it in post, like fix it now, right? Like fix it beforehand, do it right now. Yeah. Like take care of the things that are important when they're important, right? You don't try and fix it later. Right. Like you're going to have a way, it's going to be way easier. It's going to be way better. If you, if you take care of the shit, that's important, you know, like when it, when it really counts, when it really matters. Right. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I, I also like, you know, for me, like I made my show and my show was, you know, very complicated, 42 actors, big character arcs, big, you know, big world, uh, total world creation, you know, visual effects, special effects, wardrobes, costumes, all this stuff. Yeah. Sci-fi. Um, and I went out and made that and it was great. And there was a certain kind of creativity to be able to express that we had a very, very limited budget. So that's actually kind of what made it so creative in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and figuring out how to overcome challenges with that was, uh, a trying experience to say the least, but also probably brought out a profound amount of creativity out of all of us. Yeah. Um, you know, now where I'm at in my career, I've kind of gone down that road. I've done that. Um, and I'm not really called to do that personally as an artist as much right now. I'm more called to, to tell the character version of versions of the story more than the personal story. And so, you know, um, and I've been saying this kind of last few podcasts, but like, you know, I'm going to start again kind of from scratch, you know, but with all the life experience and wisdom and education I already have. And so with this last script that I wrote, basically just a guy and a girl in a, in a loft, you know, and that's the whole movie. And it really forced me to, um, not rely on any tricks. I simply had to have two people there and connect. And Mm -hmm. I had to have, I think I built enough of a backstory with it. Um, where, you know, where they, it's, it's really compelling and interesting 90 minutes of storytelling and it's really character driven. And what's really great about this, I'm going to do this a few times now. Like this is my plan is to, is to write three movies like this and make all three and I don't know, maybe more, whatever, maybe more plays, but my, my plan is to do more of this for a little bit. And then from there, uh, to move into bigger things but the lessons I'm learning right now on a small scale, I think are going to help inform what I'm going to do on a bigger scale. Yeah. And so, you know, David Mamet talks about that, you know, Dov Simmons kind of talks about that. You know, a lot of these very like really good mentors and people who encourage kind of talk about how, you know, in a lot of ways, like just having people 
kind of building from a small place into a bigger place is much better because if you, if you start too big, you miss the foundations of what it means to build small. So like for me, in a lot of ways, it's kind of humbling to go back and like to do something like this, like to go from making a 42 character show to a two character show to go from having something that had probably, I don't know, probably a hundred different scenes in it to something that has 12 scenes. It literally has, the whole movie has 12 scenes, right? But they're all, all 12 of the scenes. Like, um, I think nine of them all occur in the same location. Yeah. You know what I mean? So maybe, maybe eight of them. But the thing is, is that, you know, so there's really only four locations in the whole thing. And so for me to kind of like pare it back this way, but what I learned through this process was like less in a lot of ways is really more. Mm -hmm. And it's giving me certainly can be, it's giving me the building blocks to do something more complicated later that I didn't necessarily have the skill to do. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's a, it's such a great place to, to begin is from a place of limitation to really see how you can extract every last ounce of juice out of something, uh, and then build from there. Because I think of, you know, while we're still on the film, film kick here, we should maybe, we could maybe dive into some other, other, uh, things here. I can maybe talk a little bit about music and stuff as well. But, uh, you know, I look at some of the great, you know, the big time directors, the people who've, who've done it all. I think of, you know, Scorsese, I think of Spielberg or something, you know, it's like, here's two guys who are extraordinary at building worlds extraordinary at building worlds. Uh, Scorsese kind of takes them like from like actual little microcosms of our society of like, you know, like Wolf of Wall Street, you know, he took on the cult, like the, that culture and world of Wall Street in the eighties, you know, like he took on, you know, the, you know, mafia culture, you know, in, in, um, Goodfellas and stuff, you know, he brings you into these worlds but it's still always a personal story. Mm-hmm. There's still always a very per- same thing with Steven Spielberg. I think something like, um, like AI. That's one of my favorite movies that he's ever done. I think it's one of his under appreciated films that he's, he's done, but it's this really kind of melancholy, heart wrenching story about this little robot kid. And there's just happens to be this futuristic world all around him, but it's such a personal story Mm. that you feel first for like, it's, he's extracted the thing that's important first. And then it's thrown into this kind of extraordinary world. Right. Um, it's not the other way around, you know, it's like, Oh, there's this world and it's all of this and this is going on and blah, 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 blah. And then, there's this, uh, a person who's in there. Like it's not secondary. Like the, like great storytelling is, has a personal connection to us. And that's, and that we, we connect to it through a character. We connect to it through somebody who is like us. Mm. We don't connect to it through a world. The world can, yeah, it can draw us in. It can create intrigue, but then we go, okay, so now why do I care? Right. Why do I even care? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's true. I I think, um, 
You know, I think that's the thing is that there's a lot of stuff with the resources. It's kind of like people go outside in as opposed to inside out. Like it starts, it starts with a seed. It starts with something small. It starts with something personal. And then from there it branches out. And I think that, you know, coming up with concept and, and these big worlds is, in, is important. And it's, it's part of pushing the medium of film forward. But at the end of the day, you still got to figure out, I mean, at the beginning of the day, really, yeah. you got to figure out what is it that matters about this personally, because people relate to character and they relate to something human and, and people something connect, honest. Yeah. People connect to a lot smaller things than they do the bigger thing. Like I think of the Transformers movies and I think about the yeah. first one and I really liked the first one a lot. The other ones like I did too. Yeah. The other yeah. ones I didn't really care for as much, but the first one was really good at kind of bringing you into that personal story of the kid and his life and kind of, you know, and, uh, it, it just, they did a really good job at kind of setting up, you know, and, and people might say, well, you know, as maybe a little bit, certain elements might be a little bit superficial or a little bit kind of, it didn't have like a massive amount of depth necessarily, mm-hmm. but it was enough for me to go. Yeah. You know, like I kind of get that boyish kind of thing where you're kind of coming of age and you're like, you know, and really, in a lot of ways, um, the story of the guy and the girl were enough to kind of make that story work on its own. And yeah. then you add robots into it and then it becomes actually even more interesting because that just enhances their initial yeah. nugget of a, uh, of a challenge, right? Well, you know what I would say is actually in that first Transformers movie, what that whole personal connection for, for me as an audience member in that, yeah. that, that was the most interesting that had me the most connected was between, uh, Shia LaBeouf's character and, and Bumblebee. Yes. I, like, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. And B is like, you know, he's like, no, he's not, um, he's not, uh, major character. He's not a ma- Yeah. He's not. Uh, oh God. He's people, a big character. People are going to kill me for this. The, <laughs> uh, it's not Megatron, is it? Or it's the, the, like the main sort of, uh, like uh, robot, the good guy, uh, Optimus prime, Optimus, Optimus prime, Optimus prime, Optimus prime. You know, he yeah. is like the, you know, he's the leader of He's the Leonardo yeah. <laughs> of the, of the transformers world. But it's just like, it's really all about him and B. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Optimus prime is in there and he's an important part of the whole equation, but it's like, that's really the whole thing right there. That's why I get, I kind of cared about what was going on in it. Totally. Yeah, you're right. And you know, they had actually three elements. Now that I think about it, they had, um, the kid and B and then they had the kid and the girl and then they had the kid and his family in the first one. Yeah. They had three, three really good kind of, um, you know, they had kind of their plot and they had three, I guess those were all subplots, yeah. but they had those kind of real human elements to it. So the main plot of like saving the world and stopping the, the machines from taking over was like, if you just have that plot and you don't have those human subplots in it, yeah. I think the movie becomes very bland. And I think that's kind of what happened with Transformers a little bit where it be kind of, kind of became a little bit more bland. Yeah. Same with Star Wars. You go back to Lucas, like those first ones that were made, you know, before the prequels, they really got you connected to the characters. And if you look at the new ones, 
people can have all the expectations they want, but what they're doing really well right now is they're getting you connected to the human story in star Wars again. Yeah. Cause those first prequels that like, you know, that Lucas made in, in between it all, like they were, they the characters were very wooden. They were very, I wooden. would say maybe save for, um, you and McGregor. Yeah. Or maybe I'm just blind because I'm a big fan of you and <laughs> McGregor, but you know, like he, he, he played a great Obi-Wan, but otherwise it was, like he was really the only character I felt I cared about in those early ones. Everyone else was just sort of, yeah, it was, I very, don't know. It was, it was to, very much it was about to the move politics. from plot to pl- plot point to plot point. Really? It kind of seemed like, you know, we have a lot of story we want to fill in now. There's yeah. Lot, and it was more about that than it was about the story. And I think that, you know, like I love Lucas. I think he's amazing. I think yeah. like, for him to build, have built the world that he built and to have set up a franchise that changed the world is, you know, forever. It's forever going to be amazing. It's like in certain ways, you know, even if we say, well, Hey, it wasn't as great as your first bunch in, it doesn't matter. You've set, you've changed the world. You've done something and that's great. I think what happened maybe for him is that I, I, project that he created this massive world and he had things that he wanted to fill in. Yeah. But, um, I maybe, maybe lost sight of the fact that it was kind of that initial story of like Luke Skywalker being the end of this underdog and the hero's journey and, you know, this ragtag, uh, group and Han Solo and just like, you know, and how like, chewy, you know? And it's just like all these little people that like really had like these lives in this crazy world that was going on. Whereas later it became more about kind of filling in those stories and kind of talking about what's going on around it. You know, there was this, um, actually a video game that came out for, I think it was the N64 and it was a star Wars, but it was an off story. It was about a, a guy who was like kind of almost like Han Solo. He wasn't a Jedi or anything. Okay. And, um, you know, and it was a great little game because you kind of got attached to this guy's little story. It was like very successful, I believe on, uh, on N64, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was really cool. He was kind of, you know, he wasn't a Jedi, so he kind of was limited in his, in his abilities. And you were, and I played that game endlessly. I thought it was so much fun. And I think like, um, you know, this kind of goes across the board. It's like, it's the human part of the story that we care about. And then all the extra things around it, I think enhance that. And and I don't think that you shouldn't have them. I just think that you need to have that core story before you have all the great enhancements and wonders. Mm -hmm. And I think a story without all the enhancements and wonders can live up if the writing is like unbelievably incredible, like depthy. I think that's really challenging to do at a certain point to even compare, like to take like a story that's, um, you know, like how do you compare say reservoir dogs and like, like, uh, well, transformers or, or star Wars, how do you compare them? You know what I mean? Like Mm. it's not really fair to compare them because people go, well, I like this movie. I like that movie. But in many ways, if you look at like what was put in the, the complications of these bigger movies, from a sheer technical point of making movies, Star Wars and, and Transformers and stuff 
are way more complicated, take way more people and way more work to get that done. So in, in that respect, from a technical filmmaking point, much more incredible. But from a story point and from a narrative and from an emotional kind of like audience care point, you look at Reservoir Dogs and you go, well, it's in many ways like one of those films that's like so memorable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so like, I think the thing is, is what we want to try to do is we want to try and find a balance. Yeah. We're trying to find a balance between having a real character story and not just throwing everything at the wall because we can, but at the same time, pushing outside of just making like one room dramas or comedies and pushing out into the world and seeing what we're capable in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Cause that's also impressive. Yeah. And you know, and I think the thing is, is that like what I think the point we're kind of bringing up here is about how limitations help us to have a more full, more depthy, more well-rounded um, piece of art. Yeah. I'd love to talk about, I know we're on film, but yeah, before you go, once I want to move on to like music and other things too, not just film. Yeah. You know oh yeah. I know. Not at all. Um, I was just going to make sort of more of a broad statement there, sure. which is for me, the, the provocative thing that I was sort of contemplating coming into this conversation was that like, it doesn't really matter whether you have limitations or not within your work is that it's like creativity is there, there is creative solution to all of them. They don't necessarily give or take anything away. Hmm. Right. Like it's, it's more of a judgment that we're placing on these things. So like what you're saying is like, just because you have everything you want, doesn't mean you'll be stifled creatively. No, but it doesn't mean you will be stifled, but it can stifle it you can just stifle as how you. being yeah. limited, like technically or whatever it is, doesn't necessarily stifle you. Right. It can actually open possibilities up to you. Right. Right. So it's like, it's not like I'm saying one thing is better than the other. That was kind of thing in my head. I'm like, it's not really one thing's better than the other. It's they each have challenges and they each have sort of benefits to them. Um, anyhow, we will continue on with this conversation. Sure. Um, I I agree with you. I I think you raise a really good point because I think sometimes when we're having these talks, we're, we're really trying to push into a certain area and it may sound like we're making that side better. Mm -hmm. But I think always what we're ultimately attempting to do is, is kind of find a balance and, find where something that doesn't seem like it would be a good thing can be a good thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, cause I think like, you know, like, you know, that saying like more money, more problems Yeah. in a lot of ways, that's really true. Like when you don't have money, it's very hard to see how that would be. So, but what people don't really realize is that more money actually often does create more problems in certain ways, especially in our society, the way it is now he- hear me out. I think it's better to have more money. <laughs> and I don't think you would need to have more problems because you have more money. Yeah. But in our society, the way we're programmed and the way we're set up, it tends to be, we will have more problems. The reason why is because we're taught to spend more. We're taught to need more. We're taught to use more of our money. So what ends up happening is you get a bigger house, you get more cars, you get more things, you get more stuff. And what ends up happening is 
Um, a lot well, of people the money's gone. <laughs> no, well then you actually get yourself into, you leverage yourself. So now you get yourself into stress because it costs more to live. So more insurance because your stuff can be stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, m- more pressures because now in certain ways you might have money. And although you might be getting attention from people that you like, you might have more people coming around your life that are just using you or like want a piece of you or, or expect something from you, which can create problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you can start to doubt the social relationships you have, the friends, the things like that, because maybe they're around because of your status or what you own. Yeah. So like, in our society, having more of what you want can actually create more problems and actually give you less of what you truly want. So that's the kind of point that I want to say is Mm -hmm. that ultimately it's better to have more money and more ability and more of the stuff, but it's how you use it. And I think what we're bringing up right now is how to have the resources, but use them better. Yeah you know, and before you have the resources to work with what you got and not make excuses because, Oh, if only I had the resources, then I would do it, which is bullshit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That there's not necessarily like there's that they sort of the whole give take of the situation is somewhat of an illusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially as artists where we're in, in, in creativity where there's, there is no limitation. Well, you know, like when we do this podcast, I mean, I would love for us to have a full studio that's totally soundproofed that we can go to that's set up that we never have to set it up again. It's just there. It's designed. We each have a personal mic, our own monitor. The guest has a spot. There's no worrying about who's going to sit anywhere. Like I would love that. But the thing is, if we wait for that, we'll never make a podcast. Yeah. So in, in certain ways, we got to just start. We got to work with what we got. And we've been, you know, I think we've been creative. The important thing is that I think we've been putting out really good content Mm -hmm. because we keep getting a really strong audience listening base and it's growing all the time. Yeah. So the way I look at it is like, well, the world benefits more from the content and we benefit more from this conversation than we do from all the perfect things. Yeah. And I think as we move along, I mean, we've only been live now for seven months as we move along, one day we may actually get there where we actually have the studio, we have the mics, we have the the computers, the monitors, the seats, the setup, all this stuff. But for the time being, it's about what's important, this conversation, because we could have all that stuff, but not have a very good conversation. Who cares about all this stuff? You know what I'm saying? Uh, Oh yeah, absolutely. So it starts here, having a good conversation, one mic, basic, you know, it's kind of in some ways is about point of diminishing returns. Yeah. Right. So it's like, you got to take care of the shit that matters. Right. Um, so we look, but my point is we learn to, we learn to build a podcast on strong content and yeah. maybe that content will lead us to, to have more of the benefits of yeah. what can happen or more of the, you know, the things that we desire. Yeah. But had we started and been given everything, but without the conversation, without yeah. the content, I, I don't care. I don't, I don't think people would care so much about our sound quality. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Totally. I think people will put up with lesser sound quality for better content than they will for lesser content with better sound quality. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's kind of the point I want to make with film and music and, and podcasts and just about anything is that sometimes having what you want, you think that you have what matters, but you don't. 
Yeah. What actually mattered was something that cost nothing. Best things in life for free. Yeah. As they say, right? <laughs> Ironically. And life art, they're supposed to parallel each other or something like that, something right? Something like that, yeah. Um, so to... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you want to, uh, to get into music. I want to kind of get into music too. Like we can just... I feel like we're just kind of throwing some examples out there in, in how this works. And, you know, in music, I've heard... I've heard things. One of our, our guests that we had on uh, a while back, Shane, uh, Shane Martin, he had, you know, he says things from time, time to time to me. It's like, we're, we'll be listening to something and he'll, and he'll say, he's like, he's like, this sound, he says the album, this album sounds overproduced. Hmm. He's like, it's over. It's too clean. Like it's too, like everything is just so neat and so tidy that it's just like, he, he's just like, I almost can't even listen to it for a long time. Mm. Right. Like, cause it's just, it's just too clear. And I thought that was so, so interesting. And it's not an entirely unfamiliar concept to me because it's like little things like you, you know, let's say there's like a, someone who has a, a really big song that's, that's out. And then you hear like, one of those like stripped down, unplugged, like acoustic versions of it that they do. And you go, I like this version better than, than the, the main one. Mm. Right. And it's because sometimes it's like when you strip something, you take some of the stuff away from it, you actually get to the core of what's really going on within the song. Sometimes hearing those versions of songs, I hear the words for the first time. I hear the lyrics and what, and the meaning behind it, because there's just been so much production thrown into it. And, and there's, you know, all of these different instruments and there's background singers and those are all terrific things and they can all lend themselves to a song. But they, again, they can all, you can hit a point where it's diminishing returns. And in fact, they start to pull something away from it. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite bands is the black keys. And I hear people all the time. They talk about like, I like the early Black Keys stuff. <laughs> you know, I don't like their newer, their newer stuff. And I'm said, okay, I understand. Their old stuff was really. They didn't have a lot to work with. And I've watched like, and I've I, some sort of documentaries about them and and how they got their start. I mean, they started as just two guys, and one of them had some like pretty basic secondhand, like recording equipment in their basement. And they just recorded some stuff with that. They recorded their first album with some pretty like shitty analog equipment. (laughs) And that was their first record. But, and there's something like, and it does, you listen to it and you're like, whoa, like it, it sounds kind of lo-fi. Like you hear it and there's something kind of dirty and grimy about it. Like, cause it's not perfect. There's like there, it has a certain quality to it, but that quality is part of what a lot of people love about it, mm. especially for the type of music that they play, which is kind of like this blues rock kind of you know, fusion-y stuff. And that effect almost works in its favor. Mm. And so people love it because the music was still good. Mm. Um, 
And now later on, they've got, you know, they've blown up, they become a really big band. And, and now they have like tremendous production value into what they can do. Everything sounds crystal clear. You can, you can pick out everything that's going on in the, in the music. And I still really like it. I I can listen to their early stuff. I can listen to their later stuff. And I go, I I love all of it for different reasons, Mm. right? Because there is something I love about that, like edge to their old stuff, which they did on absolutely nothing Mm. because there is an element of that, that has been lost Mm. in their newer, in their newer stuff. A, A, an element that, yeah, there's a part of me that goes just like, Oh, I would love to hear them do something like they did back here. But at the same time, there's things going on in their new music that they just weren't capable of right. doing before. Cause they were just two guys in a basement. It just wasn't possible. But you want to get into that argument of, well, which is better. Yeah. I don't, it's like, <clears throat> you know, how I think that's you, like a fleeting argument always because which is better is they're, they're not comparable. You know, they're, they're things that aren't comparable. I think musicians run into that challenge more than ever because they change their sound. They change their style. They evolve, they, um, move and, 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 and just become something new as artists and their, and their careers change and they may, maybe whatever. And I think that there's, there's always going to be people that kind of get nostalgic and want to kind of recreate what, what was in the beginning. But if things mm. always were what they were in the beginning, in certain ways, it might not be as good anymore. But there's this, I think there's this kind of, um, I don't know, it's like a fantasy that once good can always be the same good or the same great, Yeah, you know? And the thing is, is that we change, you know, we like when I started as a filmmaker in some ways, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this just because of the way that I, I used to think, but some people love my earlier stuff more, more than they might like my more, the stuff I'm into now. But I used to really want to make action films and war movies and stuff like that. I yeah. was really fascinated by all that stuff. Uh, I went out, I did that, you know, I made a few things. Um, and now I'm like, you know, I don't really believe in war anymore and I don't really want violence and death all the time. You know, like if I can avoid it, I would rather avoid it now. That's just where I've moved in my life. Some people still really want those types of movies. Yeah. But the thing is, is that what am I going to do? Am I going to like just make that because I'm trying to please everybody else or I'm going to make art because, you know, I have something I have to say. Mm -hmm. And so that's been an interesting challenge for me personally, whereas, you know, I've evolved as an artist and now it's kind of like, well, embrace where you're at right now. You know, I I think right now I want to write kind of like, um, very like personal kind of like, I don't want to call them love stories, but like stories of like, like friendship, love, like family love, you know, maybe even romantic love, but like a real, like human connection, like these dramas about real human connection at various scenarios. And I want to, and I want to do these kind of like comedies, like the, the kind of funny shit that happens with people. Like, yeah. for example, let me, let me just share a story. This is really funny actually, but like it start it's, it started a whole, a whole feature I'm, I'm working on. I was driving along with a girlfriend. Yeah. Okay. This is, this is a little while back. I'm driving along with a girlfriend and she mentioned, this is so ridiculous. She mentions 
about how when we drove out to her friends, which I had only ever done once with her, which was way out in like, you know, the burbs. Yeah. How she gave me roadhead. (laughs) (laughs) She never in our entire time ever together gave me roadhead. Yeah. Ever. Period. Never happened. (laughs) So I was like, no, not me. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, I did. And she's trying to convince me that we drove out there and she did this. (laughs) And so this is just so hilarious to me. I'm just like laughing because she thinks (laughs) that I'm some other guy. She blew on the road driving out to her friends. Oh my God. So I'm, I'm like dating her. Like, you know, it's awkward for me. It gets super awkward for her because she realizes that she's wrong. It's just ridiculous. But she's still trying to, like, convince you that it did happen. Oh, and, like, and now she has to kind of be like, I'm an idiot. I can't believe I brought that up. And I'm kind of like, I don't want to think about you and another dude. And, like, it's just weird. But, like, it's it's one of those moments where it's all how you look at it. Like, I, I kind of, like, at first I was kind of like, I was like, all right, like, I'm just going to try to think about this one too much. But I, I looked at it later. I'm like, that's hilarious. Like, that's the kind of stuff that has happened in my life, you know? And I have these comedy ideas about writing about the zany, weird shit that people do. Cause I have so many stories like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like for me right now in my life, I feel like those are, the, there's so much, um, fuel for the fire for me to write stories like this. Yeah. So I'm kind of like, venturing into that just because, and it's not even like, like, I don't even know if I like, if I like writing, but I like getting stories out of me. Like I like putting them down and getting them down, Yeah, you know? And I kind of always have this hope that I'll get to make them, but I realize like writing's kind of one of those things where I'll write a lot of stories and most of them won't get made. And I'll kind of like, have just learned to accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, that's kind of where I am now, which is a long way from where I was in the beginning where it was like, I want to write spy movies and war movies and these action, like sci-fi things, which is much more what I wanted to do when I was younger. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, I think the other thing too, is we can evolve as artists. And sometimes I think, because I don't have as much resources as I had, like in my twenties, I actually had a lot of resources to get stuff made. I don't actually, in certain ways I have more resources, but in certain ways I have less. Yeah. Um, so now I'm kind of being more crafty about the stories I want to tell, but in a weird way, they actually, it kind of works with the stories I want to tell right now. Yeah. It's informing the stories I kind of want to make. So my, my, my point is, is that I think that we shouldn't try to reclaim what we did in the beginning but we should mm. always take lessons from what we did in the beginning, use them to inform today and still be okay with the fact that today might be different than it was. But like, um, I think if you want to have like a long career in music or film or anything like that, that you use your whole career as a whole palette, not just like, Oh, you know, I did red, like red was my color when I was younger and I will always use red from now on forever. Yeah. It's like, maybe you transitioned into blue or green or orange or whatever the hell, but like, don't make it wrong that, you know, that you did red for a while, you know, now you do something else, but you can use red to kind of inform what you do with blue or what you do with these other colors, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
even Picasso changed. Picasso yeah. used to be doing like real lifelike paintings. A lot of people don't realize this. Yeah. And then later he had a style, he had a thing that he kind of wanted to express. And now he's very famous for that. So, but if he always yeah. hung on to, but I need to show people how good of a painter I am mm. in a way, his, his bucking the system. It was like, he, he knew he was a good artist, which I, I think was part of what helped him to let go and try a new style. Well, I mean, I don't know if he necessarily knew that he was a good artist per se. Maybe he did, but I mean, he, I'm pretty sure he did from he what was, I understand. He was able to actually just li- he was able to actually listen to his artistic voice. Sure. He trusted his artistic voice more so than anything because, you know, you bring up, you bring up such a good point because you know, that's exactly what happens. If, if so many of these artists had sort of listened to their egos of so many artists had, had, um, bought into this idea that, um, showing your technical ability makes you an artist. They would never be the, the people that they are today. Had Picasso just continued to do the works that he had in his, in the early part of his life, he probably would have never been, been the artist that we've come to know him as today. Exactly. Yeah. I also think when it comes to like art, like painting and sculpting and all of this, a lot of the time artists, um, were born out of having only certain tools and means like, you know, um, the natives, there's a lot of great native artists, maybe a lot we'll, we'll never know, but wood was plentiful and having like a knife or some type of rock blade or whatever was available. And so a lot of their um, sculpting and things came from wood. Yeah. And, and so they would carve animals and faces and certain spiritual things into the wood. And that became kind of the art style, mm-hmm. right? And so now it's a whole thing. And so I think sometimes by working with what you have, meanwhile, I think, it, I don't know if it was the Greeks or the Romans or whatever the Greeks, I guess. Yeah. I don't know who it was, but then, you know, there's stone. Stone was the big thing. Yeah. Right. And so different tools, different marble availability, and- marble and whatnot. Um, you know, back like, uh, you know, you take like the caveman, cavewoman type situation where, you know, very basic tools they carved into the wall, but it became a certain kind of communication. So I think yeah. there's like, sometimes just working with what you have, although it seems somewhat simplistic and like might seem like it doesn't really mean a lot, you know, like I've seen people do amazing things with just all they had was a pencil or a pen and some paper and they, you know, sketching, sketching came out of not really having all the tools. It came Mm -hmm. from using kind of what you had and, and making something kind of amazing out of like a very limited tool option. Yeah. Almost like one color. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like, and figuring out shading and all sorts of things. With yeah. yeah. Like I'm, I love, um, uh, people who, who sketch with charcoal. Yeah. Like I love people who work with charcoal. It's, there's just something about how that looks to me that I just, I absolutely love it. And it has its limitations, but I mean, if you use a different, if you use something else, then it just wouldn't be charcoal. Right. It just wouldn't be the thing that it, that, that makes it what it is. Well, and like, look at that, like charcoal, right? Like someone figured out to, to, to use that as an option to kind of like create something. Yeah. And like, 
I think a lot of the time, a lot of this comes out of like, what's available to me right now. And, and, and like, I, I think that the tools are not always superior to what's available, but sometimes using lesser tools creates better art because when you work with something that, that is limited for whatever reason, you have to kind of figure out a manipulation of it, a way to use it, which is different than anyone's ever done before. Yeah. And that's, that's really, I think and what we're kind of talking yeah, about. And yeah. And I think that even saying something like it's a lesser tool is a bit of a disservice, right? It's like, is it a lesser tool who like, this is, this is my, that's whole, a great point. This yeah. is my whole question in this conversation really like coming into it is like, is it lesser? Is it really a limitation? I don't know. And, and the you raise thing, a good point. Like, it's like, I don't know. I don't like to me, in my opinion, I don't think it necessarily is. I think it's all in the way that we look at it. Right. It's like, yeah, limited in some, but freeing in others. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter what, what you have at your disposal, whether you have lots or little, you're going to, there's going to be, there's going to be things that open up that will only open up by being in that situation. Right. If you have everything, you're not going to think of the same things as if you have nothing. Well, and also it's like, it's, it's a lot of these things come down to what we value. You know, like if you look at say the show Roseanne, one of the most famous sitcom shows that have ever, has ever been created. Yeah. Um, Roseanne with her, just with her body structure, her look and just, you know, all of that and was this dysfunctional family and, too. Yeah, was so perfect for Roseanne, you know, for that show. And she, you know, and it was groundbreaking for that reason. It was groundbreaking. And a lot of things, um, take a note from that show because that show informed everything in many ways. That's a sitcom beyond that. Yeah. And so like, you know, if we're always like, like for the actors out there who go like, if only I was more beautiful, if only I looked this way or, or whatever, like that's, that's a fool's game because some of those actors who kind of look more traditional could never play parts that, that you might be able to play. And I think the thing is, is that, you know, go back a couple podcasts where we talk about society and pressures of society and stuff. Society always wants to tell us, you know, we get this group think we get this stupid mentality of a society where we start to tell people how they think and what's right and all of this. And it's like the death of a lot of artists because unless you fit that stereotypical, you know, thing, then you're not it. And I was looking at a picture of uh, Marilyn Monroe the other day. Mm-hmm. You know, I've uh, everybody looks at these little glamorous shots of Marilyn Monroe and you know, they're all of this, but like Marilyn Monroe today and, and people say this, but like Marilyn Monroe was rather heavy. And if you look at her and you look at like kind of, um, where things were at, at the time, she was kind of the pinnacle of beauty. But a lot of people don't realize that when Marilyn Monroe first walked into like, I think it was like a studio or an agent or something like that. I think it was an agent. They told her that she would never work, that she wasn't beautiful enough. Yeah. And, and then Marilyn Monroe became the epitome of what the modern American woman was supposed to look like. Yeah. And still to today, Marilyn Monroe and her image is burned into society today. Oh yeah. Iconic. It's, it's altered. Same with James Dean, same with like, you know, a lot of this. And so the thing is, is that 
I think that we need to not try to always have everything be perfect and not try to have everything we think we want, but to really like, and I I say this word unapologetically work with what you have, you know, really use that for all it's worth. And you know, there might be something even better out of it, but you just can't see it. And people, no one can see it either. Like I'm very weary right now about handing my script to everybody. Cause like people are going to probably have their thoughts and their opinions. And I, I think it's going to piss a lot of people off. I actually think <laughs> I'll, like I was reading it the other day and I was like, I had this, because I'm doing the edit. I'll be finished it all tomorrow. Um, I'm almost done, but I was reading through it and I was like, I had this massive amount of vulnerability that came up the other day when I was doing my edit. And I'm yeah. like, Oh my God, like, people are going to know I wrote this and they're just going to, they're going to say this and they're going to think that. And <laughs> it was just like, it was a, you know, all of a sudden my ego is just going nuts on it. Right. And I was like, you know what? It's, there's something here because I'm, I'm foreseeing that it'll piss some people off and that's good. Cause I don't want stuff that's safe. But mm-hmm. the thing is, is like in, in a lot of ways by, if I was to cleave it, if I was to tame it down, if I was to, you know, make it kind of fit what I think people will like, it will lose something about it. And so I'm a little weary about handing it off to people because I already decided that I'm like, okay, people can give me the feedback they're going to give me. I will consider it all, but I'm going to take it all with like a grain of salt. I'm not going to, you know, because I'm really going to try to look through and be like, are they giving me feedback that's based on like, value and like really helping the story or is there feedback informed by this might've upset them? So I'm really going to look for that and use my like awareness of language and, and description, mm-hmm. you know, to break down kind of sentences and look at the way people talk to me about it. Because I think the biggest, the, the biggest fallacy, the worst thing that can happen is that I let everyone convince me to change it because it upsets some people. You know what I mean? As opposed to just standing my ground and saying like, this is a story and like, this is a story I want to tell. And that's, I think that's the hard line. We kind of got to walk as artists where we don't just try and fit and make everything work. And like, I think that there's pressure. There's definitely pressure for me to kind of like make, make it something that everybody's giving me the thumbs up for. Yeah. But in some ways, I think there's something good for me to go forward with this film with some people giving me the thumbs down. And I was thinking about this too. I was walking around with this this week and I was thinking about Sylvester Stallone and Rocky. And apparently he was rejected like 500 times or something like that before he ever got the film made. And when he won the Oscar, he got up and said all the things that people said about why it was shit and why it would never get made. And now it's Rocky. I mean, everybody knows Rocky and it's iconic and it made film in so many ways. So like, I'm kind of like going, okay, do I believe in it? That's enough. Do I believe in it? And so get my ego out of the situation. Let my heart lead. Do I believe in this story or do I not? And that's the answer. That's the only answer that needs to be answered. Everything else is just really what I want people to do is help me catch things that can help refine and even push it further and make it more, Yeah. you know? And like, you know, and I even caught one thing that I'm like, but it could be a, in my reread, this is the last thing I'm going to say, I caught one thing that might be a judgment on me just kind of being like, wait, story is supposed to be written this way. Mm. You know, kind of my brain's going a little bit like right. that. And I'm like, well, actually mate. And I, and I, and I, that's why I stopped kind of editing it yesterday. Cause I was almost finished. And I realized this, and I was like, 
maybe that's actually a good thing. Maybe it needs to be that way. Yeah. And so I was like, actually, and the more I think about it, I'm like, actually, like that might be a story rule that I read in a book that I'm following, not something I actually believe and agree with in this particular story. Yeah. So my, my point is, is that when I wrote it, I was working with what I had and now I'm doing the editing process and now I'm trying to go like, okay, well, should I do this, this and like, and what I want to be really careful about is not dressing it up too much to make it any more than the core story it was in the beginning. Cause I finished that draft and I even did my, I've done most of my rewrite now and I still, I still stand behind what I wrote the first time being something really strong. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I think I will write better work after this. I think I can only naturally evolve from this point, but whatever's in it, I worked with what I had and it's as truthful as I could be about this particular thing at the time. But if I was editing it and trying to be perfect while I was doing it, I just think I would have actually made it a lot. Like I would have lessened the quality of whatever it is right now. So I think, um, sometimes like knowing less is actually better, you know, cause I kind of dropped all my, as m- many of my story rules, as many of my screenwriting rules as I could, or, or principles that I know and kind of just threw caution to the wind and kind of went with it. Yeah. You know? and wrote with a kind of abandon. And like, now I look at it and I'm like, well, people ask me to edit it. I mean, I don't even know if I can edit a lot of it now because like the way they speak to each other happened spontaneously as I wrote it. Like I would almost have to rewrite sections spontaneously again, like rewrite it entirely. I don't, yeah. I don't know if I can so much edit the dialogue anymore. I mean, maybe a little here and there, but because it, 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 when it was happening, the story was more being told through me than it was like me going, Oh, this'll be really smart if they said this, Yeah, you know? So anyway, uh, that's kind of my point. My point is, is like, I don't think we always have everything we need when we begin. And so we got to kind of just begin with what we got. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's exactly what we need. Totally. <laughs> like this beer. Yes. Sir. What do you, uh, what do you think of this, uh, this, this brew? Well, I'm enjoying it. It's, um, it's kind of a little bit, uh, I mean, it's a little bit, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of a little bit hoppy. Um, it seems to me like it would be like a, uh, it's good. I mean, it's going down at a medium pace. I would say I will probably have a little bit more in a moment. Um, I'm, I am getting to the bottom. It's, it's not fast, not slow. It's like very medium pace, you know, uh, beer drinking. Um, I find that I find that it's not quite as smooth as I generally gravitate towards, but I'm still really enjoying it. It's, uh, it's tasty. It's kind of hoppy. I think it's like, I would say, and I say, or an ES extra, like an extra special bitter ESB or potentially a, um, what do you call it? A, uh, oh man, what the hell is it called? <laughs> Uh, um, oh man, what are they called? Uh, I can't remember the name right now. I can't think of what you're trying to think of. That's like the hoppy kind of beer. What's that? Anyway, not like an IPA, but like a kind of an IPA It kind of has an IPA ish to it, ness to it. But anyway, so that's, that's kind of the best I can do. I don't really know. It's, it's, you got me kind of on the ropes confused. All right. (laughs) 
Well, this one, this is from Off the Rail Brewing Company. Okay. And this is called their Kama Citra Ale. Oh. It's a, they call it a light session beer. So, I don't, it says crisp, clean, summer glow. <laughs> uh, and it's, so I'm going to say like, cause it doesn't necessarily have a title to itself. That is anything I've necessarily it's kind of an ISA, before, but session. yeah, it's kind of like an ISA. Like I said, it's a, yeah, it's like a, it's like a session ale, which is basically like a hmm. session ale. Um, yeah, very light. It's only 4.4%. Um, nice branding on the bottle. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I'm, I like off the rail. They're and I really, really like going into their brewery. If, uh, you know, our audience, if you're ever in Vancouver and you can go to off the rail, it's such a, it's such a nice little brewery and the people who run it, I think are just so like down to earth, cool, cool individuals. Um, I've stopped in there many a time. Actually, I had my very first, um, Vancouver craft beer growler fell off the rail ever in my, in my life. So they, uh, they popped my cherry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you off the rail. Thank you very much. Um, all right. Good beer, sir. Good choice. Yeah, I've been enjoying it. I've, I've been, I think I've, I've maybe been enjoying it more than you have. <laughs> Cause I'm like, wow, this goes down so easy. It has like a very, like almost a very dry, quick, hoppy finish to it. Like mm. you drink it and then it's just like, it's kind of just like this quick little flash of hop. And then it's kind of just gone. Done. Yeah. I could see how I could see how that might make me want to drink it really quickly just because, because, you know, you kind of want the next sip and the next sip, the next sip. Yeah. You know, what might go good in this is like, if you had like a wedge of lemon mm. or something, a wedge of lemon in something like this might be just off the charts <laughs> from off the rails. Next level, next level beer. Anywho. Um, so, so here we are back to this conversation we're talking about well, our limitations versus having no limitations, uh, to you, our, you were kind of talking about your, your amplifier, uh, system that could play music and it could model any type of amp amp. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, for people, if you're listening to this for the first time, I've been playing guitar for a number of years now. And, uh, I had started with acoustic, but I've been playing a lot of electric over the last, I don't know, probably like five years or something like that. And so there's a little more that goes into it. You got to buy equipment and an amplifier, as I start to learn is like just as important a piece of equipment as the guitar is. Mm. Um, in fact, some people would argue that it's more important that you, it's like you could buy a cheap guitar and a really great amplifier and you're better off going that route. Mm. Um, but anyhow, the first ones that I had bought, you know, they're, um, they're digital. They were digital. Like they still had like a speaker and everything in it, but you know, they could, they could sound like 
a lot of different kinds of things. Like the first one that I had, I think had like 33 different amps basically built in that they could sound like all these different, different guitar amplifiers. And, and then in addition to that, there were like all of these different effects. There was like, I don't know how many effects that you could then add on top of it. And it's a great little tool. It was, you know, I think it was valuable in the sense of having no understanding and no knowledge of what I was doing really. Mm -hmm. And it started to give me a sense of, Oh, because it had never occurred to me that different amplifiers sounded like different things. Mm. They had different qualities, different tones, different characteristics to them. They weren't, they're not all created the same. Um, so it gave me a, a sense, I guess, of, of what I liked and what I didn't like. Uh, I, and I went through a couple of different amps that were like that, uh, early on. And I ended up deciding and, and, and going in a different direction because I started to understand. And I also realized that I was spending so much time just noodling around with them all the time, just like switching to this one and switching to that one. And then this one, and then that one, and this one, and that one. And there was, there was more time spent in just monkeying around with, with the equipment, monkeying around with the technology than just sitting down, plugging in and playing. So I decided that ultimately that my amps after that, I wanted them to be simpler. Right. I wanted them to just have a really great sound, like the, and the kinds of sounds that I liked that could do them and was very simple to use that like, we're just, I could just turn a couple of things and, and just go for a couple of hours or something like that. Um, uh, a guitar player who also, he, he demos a lot of, um, equipment and stuff like that on YouTube. His name is Rob Chapman. He's this hilarious English guy and amazing player, but he calls like a lot of the stuff that I started out with. He, he says, he's like, he calls it option paralysis hmm. where it's just like, there's just too much. <laughs> there's just too much stuff that like you just kind of shut down and it's not necessarily what will happen to all people you know, some people, and sometimes there's a, there's a place for that to have all of those things at your disposal. But for a lot of people, it's completely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's more things that you'll ever need going on with it. And they end up more so just taking more time, taking more focus than, than you need to give them. Mm. Yeah. You know, Henry Ford is famous for saying you can have any color car you want as long as it's black. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> um, but you know, in, in a certain sense, uh, keeping like finding your finding, like making a decision and going with one is, um, is a powerful thing to do in life. And there's actually a Ted talk where they talk about how we actually have option paralysis. Essentially, we have these too many options. We go to the food store, you know, we just have too many options of stuff. Yeah. And so, um, it's, it's creating a a certain kind of indecision in society. It's creating Mm -hmm. a lack of, 
ability to make decisions and perform and get things done. Right. And so in a lot of ways, I think what you're speaking to is, is in a really valid point. It's, it's actually, it's a part of our psychology. I mean, it's actually better for us to have less options a lot of the time. So one of the things that I've learned to do is to take things and chunk them. So like, say you have 33 options. Well, you kind of categorize those. And so now there's three options and then you go, okay, well, which category do I exist in? And then you pick one of those and then you're down to 10 or 11 options. And then from there you can chunk again. You can go like, well, let's break this into like threes or something. And then, so what's happening is eventually you get down to like, you have three options, five options. And so you pick one. Um, and this makes you very confident about the choice you made because you, went through the process of canceling out options. I'm going through this right now with actually, cause I want to buy a new car, right? Yeah. So I went through and I looked at all the cars in my category and I found like kind of a price range. And at first I was like, okay, well I've never had a new car. I've always bought used cars and I've liked my cars, but I want to get a new car. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I looked at was the most, um, well, I looked at a bunch of options and then I, I, I it's particularly in a certain kind of, I would say, you know, uh, <clears throat> economy, economy option class. Cause like right now I don't want an A to B car, but I don't necessarily want a performance car. So I'm kind of like, but I don't want an SUV truck. I know that I don't want like a pickup truck, you know? So I kind of went through it. And so I was like, okay, well I'm kind of down to like kind of a, a muscle or a sports car, a sedan or a hatchback. Yeah. So I got down to those three. And then as I was walking through it, I was like, okay, well, what do I really want? I'm like, well, for me, I don't want an A to B car, but I don't necessarily want a performance car. So I was like, I would like a a faster car, but I don't want a gas guzzler. So then once I figured that out, I went, okay, well, all these muscle cars and big engine cars and big gas guzzling cars, they're kind of like, let's put them to the side for now. Mm -hmm. And so then it kind of got down to, you know, mostly hatchbacks and sedans that had an element of performance to them. Right. And so what ends up happening is that you keep cutting down options until you get to the one you want. Yeah. And so I think like you bring up a really good point because I think having like this job, if I had like, I only have a certain budget, right? Like I, I mean, basically like I'm cutting it off at like, it's definitely not going more than 40 grand, you know, like that's where I'm cutting my new car price off at. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm looking pretty much, you know, at first I was going like, okay, well, what, what's the cheapest I can go with? And then I started to go around with the whole, like, well, if I went with the cheapest car, I could get the, I could get the new car. No problem. I could pretty much go and get it tomorrow if I wanted to. But I was like, but is it the car I really wanted? And so, you know, um, someone kind of brought up to me, they said, well, you know, is it what you really want? So I, I was making a decision based on how much resources I had. Right. The reason why I bring this up is it's so important for art because I feel like sometimes we make lesser art because we only work with the resources we have as opposed to going, well, what do I want? And then maybe figure out how to get the resources to have what you actually want as mm. opposed to just settling with what you think you can get. Right. And so like this was the thing I wanted to bring up in the, in the conversation, having less options, having less resources, I think is a great like way to start, but I don't think we should settle always for what we have or what we think is available to us 
because we'll never grow. We'll never grow yeah. beyond what we can have. So yeah, we'll never necessarily push ourselves. Sometimes the question is, okay, well, this is what I really want. What would it take to have that? Am I willing to do what it would take? Yeah. And you know, so in certain ways I look at it, I go, okay, well, the lowest end new cars, there's a few that are an option. When I look at those and I go, okay, I could get one of these or I could get a used car that's maybe a few years old that's already depreciated. And so then I go, well, there's cars that have depreciated that I would rather have than a new car. So I went, okay, well, if you really want to get a new car, if you want to have that fresh, you know, that car that you want, then let's up the game and let's just figure out what the resources are required to make that happen. So that's kind of the point I want to bring forward is that I think don't settle just because you have limited resources. You can get creative and go like, okay, well, what will it take for me to get the resources I need? Right. But like, there's one car. I really like it. Okay. It's ridiculous. It's like a $250,000 car. Yeah. It's the Acura NSX, the newest one. It it goes zero to a hundred in 3.6 seconds or 3.7 seconds. It's ridiculous. It's beautiful. Ridiculous. I looked at that. I'm like, well, okay, that's not realistic. Like, sure. There's a way to figure out the resources to get that car. But like, I'm not really willing even if I had that money, I wouldn't go and spend it on that car. I just wouldn't do that. I'd spend it on something else. So there's a certain point where you could get the resources to spend it on the thing, but would you even do it? You know? Mm. And I looked at it and I'm like, well, the reason why I capped it at 40, because I was like, after $40,000, I would spend that money. I'd start spending that money on other things like making a film or doing some other things or traveling. Yeah. It wouldn't be enough of a reward to have this massively expensive sports car you know that another one that's like maybe a little bit more reasonable. I was looking at like the top end, uh, say Mustang or like a a lower end or even mid end kind of Corvette. Yeah. And I was looking at that and I was like, well, would I rather have a Corvette or a Mustang? Like have like a, like they're like a achievable kind of sports car, you know, if you want to get a high end performance somewhat. And I was like, no, I'd still rather take that extra money and go spend it on traveling. Yeah. So the way I looked at it was like, okay, well let's figure out. So, so what ends up happening is I think we need to kind of find boundaries. Yeah. Like that's kind of the point I think I'm getting to is that this talk is also about where are our boundaries? Like, where do we want to set our boundaries? Because there is a certain point where like, yeah, like you could have say a hundred million dollars to make a movie, but let's say it was your hundred million dollars would you spend your hundred million dollars on making a movie? Like knowing that you could lose it all. Like, would you do that? Would that be your first film? I mean, I wouldn't, I would probably like at the most, maybe if, if I had that kind of money, maybe I would take a few million if I can get like a big name actor and like, I I would do it very intelligently, but really I would probably still do a lot of the same stuff I'm doing right now, which really put in perspective that I'm on the right track because more resources didn't necessarily change my game plan. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It doesn't change. Um, the, like the, the work you want to create doesn't change the stories that you want to tell. Um, and yeah, and I think it's, it's about, it it is having a, a certain kind of an awareness of, you know, where, um, in your work, are you, are you asking what, for what is unnecessary, you know, like really getting like cutting to what do you actually really need? Because, 
it, you know, and it is a balance. Like so much, everything we talk about on this show is, is, is balance, 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 balance. Um, because you can end up sitting forever on a project not moving forward with it because you have some idea of something that you want or something that you think you need in order to do this properly. Yeah. When you in fact actually don't. Right. You don't always need these things. And it's like, and and you're making it a condition to create, you're making it a condition upon your art. And it's just like, well, is it really necessary is there another solution? You know, can you find a way to still do this thing with what you have now? Mm-hmm. Or is there just like a couple of pieces that are more easily accessible to you that you can still go ahead and, and create with? You know, I think, I think one thing too is like, I always say this to filmmakers when they start out is like, when you make like when you make this agreement to make a film, like, you know, really make the commitment that come hell or high water, you're making the film. Like no matter what happens, whether you get the money that you want from, maybe you're doing crowdsourcing Indiegogo, maybe you're doing private financing, maybe you're putting your own budget in, you know, just make that decision. And it's not really just, but make the decision that you're going to do it no matter what. And it's a really, really hard thing to be that committed because, um, you know, what ends up happening is that often in these experiences, not always, but often things will go wrong and you'll feel like it will, it can't be what you thought it could be. It won't be as like, you'll have to make a compromise or it'll be lesser than what you wanted. And I think that if you're not willing to commit fully you'll probably never make anything. You'll probably never really produce art and you'll never push yourself forward. So like for me with, um, you know, I, I, I've set in motion, like I've set in motion that I'm making this film and you know, there's all sorts of things that have come up where it goes, okay, well this is going to be challenged. That's challenged. That's challenged. Whatever. There's probably going to be certain things where there's going to be compromises I might have to make this time, but I look at it and I go, okay, well, I need to figure out a way to make this happen. Come hell or high water. It just simply has to happen Yeah. from my commitment level, regardless of what it is. I even had the thought, I said, you know what? I'll film it. We'll make it. If it doesn't work, I'll do it again. And I think that's the other thing too, is that I think sometimes we forget as artists that in our early stages of our artist career, we can do it again. Like when you're at the big blockbuster stage, you don't get to do it again. But mm-hmm. when you're at this early stage, you can literally just be like, okay, I got a great script. I filmed it and it sucked and I don't like it at all. So I'm not going to use any of that. I'm literally going to remake the movie. Yeah. And you know, the people who are on board, if they don't want to do it with you again, then you'll get new people and you'll remake it. And, and that's just how it goes. Yeah. And you know, and if that's what you need to do, you'll do. But often I find if I go in with the, with the willingness to remake it, a lot of the time it's not necessary. It's yeah. like kind of like, no, it actually works. I'm actually happy with it and, I, and it's done and I'm ready to move on, you know? Yeah. 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 It's letting a certain part of it go. But I was going to say that like, even, 
even now, like you see, you, you hear about, and there's articles of like all kinds of like big studio, huge giant budget films. And they're like, Oh shit. It's going into like two, three, four weeks of reshooting. You know, they're, they're reshooting huge portions of the movie because they're like, something's just not working. Hmm. And for a system at a level where you would think the expectation is that everything has been figured out. They've figured like they have the resources they've like, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted to do. And they get to, they're starting to cut the film and they're like, holy shit, this doesn't work. Mm hmm this film is not working and holy crap. Good thing. They got that. And they they took out that huge insurance policy or whatever it was, right? Because they've got to go and they've got to reshoot, you know, half this fucking thing, right? Like it happens at at all of these levels. I think it just further illustrates, and I'm sure people can, can think of a handful of movies where this has been reported, Yeah, (laughs) you know, over this last year, a couple of movies jump into my mind right away. But, uh, and they still didn't work at the end of it all. So go figure. So it's like, it doesn't like, and and I think just further illustrates, I think the, the point that the thing that I wanted to explore, but in some ways I felt like, and maybe it was just because we were directing it this way from the very beginning, but something that I had kind of suspected, which was that, you know, you're, the resources you have or don't have have nothing to do with the quality hmm. of your work. It has very little to do with the quality of your work. Mm-hmm. It has very little to do with the creativity that goes into your work. It has very little to do with the artistry of your work. Hmm. They're just it's just tools. Mm -hmm. It's just things. Right. Um, but they don't, they don't determine the quality of your work. Yeah. I guess, I I guess that's (laughs) one more time. (laughs) No, just, you know, sometimes you just got to keep saying it over and over and over again. Sometimes to get, to get through sometimes Sometimes just saying it to get it through my own skull. (laughs) Uh, well, you know, I feel like we've kind of, we've kind of delved into this yeah. you know, to the point. Well, I mean, I'm to a point that I'm repeating myself yeah, to the point where you're repeating, <laughs> but I do feel like we kind of got the point across. And I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk away from this conversation with, um, kind of a, I would say a confidence that what I'm working with right now is all I need to work with what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And I don't need anything more Um, and if there is something that I perceive that I do require, it's something that is necessary to get what I want done. I simply just have to ask myself, am I willing to do what it would take to get that resource, to get that, that there so I can make this happen? And what would it take to do it? Am I willing to do that? And 
am I, would I, would I put, do I want to put my energy into acquiring this thing that I think will make this thing a little bit better or whatever? Or would I rather put my energy into something else and not fight that battle because it's actually not as necessary as I might be making it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think like what I'm going to do actually is I'm kind of going to do the same thing I was mentioning with the car. Now that I think of it, yeah. uh, the way I have narrowed down my car options, I'm pretty much sure the one I want, but I've narrowed it down to several options that I, you know, that I like, I'm going to use the same model with my creative artistic career moving forward where I'm going to l- kind of look at my options about where I'm going. Like, what do I want? And then begin to kind of align it to my values and scale it down the same way I did with the cars. Like, okay, well, you know, there's this part of me that goes, you know, I want to be in Hollywood, you know, signing autographs, you know, uh, on these big motion pictures. And like, there's a certain thing that that might take to, to attempt to do that. Yeah. Um, and I go, well, I don't know if I want that as much as I actually sometimes think I do. I think that that to me is kind of like a nice idea more than it is something. What I really want right now, and I'm just realizing like more in this conversation is what I really want to do right now is I want to make a film that I have control over. That's something that's meaningful to me and important to me. I don't care how big of a budget it is. I don't care, you know, about too much about other than just kind of getting it made, doing it and like being kind of in control. And the other thing that seems like the most important thing to me is going and traveling somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to look at, I'm going to take this forward and go, okay, well, what are my means? Like maybe I don't have the freedom and time to necessarily go to Australia right now and like fly the other side of the world. I mean, maybe that's possible. I don't know. But like, I don't know if that's something I really want to do right now, but like I could go to the Island. I could go to Vancouver Island or something like that and hang out for the weekend. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a way for me to get what I want, which doesn't necessarily need to be, um, you know, it could be hundreds of dollars instead of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars. Like yeah. when I go to Europe, I'd like to have a decent amount of money cause I want to go for a while and I would go to a lot of cities and I want to meet some people and kind of tour around. That's kind of my plan. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it will go, but that's my plan. So I want to have a certain amount of resources. I like to do that in Australia as well. Victoria, I have a few friends there. It's not going to cost me a lot of money for acquisition of people. And then from there, you know, I can stay at a hotel and I can take the ferry over there or the plane or whatever, and I can go do that. And that's reasonable. And it can be a weekend. It doesn't have to be a whole like, you know, eight weeks or something. You know what I mean? So what I'm going to do moving forward is I'm going to take kind of what we talked about, look at the resources I have, and then I'm going to make some decisions based on what I have that are in line with what I want and, and not make excuses for not doing things I want to do. Because like, that's been a big thing for me is I feel like, well, I don't have the resources to do a lot of what I want to do. But since I started to go forward with making this film, I was like, well, I have the resource to make this film. I have the resources to make this one location film. I even already got the location for free. I already figured it all yeah. out, you know, the main one. So it's like, okay, do things right now that are within my means and go and do the things I want. And then that will help me lead to doing more of what I want on a bigger scale. But right now I'm going to the lesson I'm taking from this is start small, keep it simple, do things that are in line with what I want within my means at the moment. And then I'm not waiting to live my life for the resources I will one day have. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm doing going forward. Yeah. I think, uh, mine's, mine's pretty similar actually to that is 
really to um, do more of the th- yeah, like do more of the things that I want to right now without by not making it conditional upon all of these other things to look at what can I do right now? Like with, with the things that I want to do, what can I actually do? Hmm. What is actually in my control that can make this possible? Hmm. Right. And, and yeah, not waiting for resources to, to open up or, or think that I need to have certain things in order to make, to make something happen. Hmm. Right. And, um, and trust that the resources I need, that the things that I will actually need, I'm going to figure them out and that they might be exactly, exactly what's right. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I, and I, after you said that it kind of, I, I had a moment to think after what I said too, my mind is already being creative about what I can do. I'm already yeah. like, so I think I'm going to just really like, and I think that's the point, right? That's the whole point of this conversation is that we don't need necessarily more means or more tools or more resources to be creative and do what we want in some ways, because I, because I don't feel like I have the freedom or necessary, the resource and ability to do what I want entirely like on the bigger scale yet. I can still be creative with what I can do right now. And so I'm already thinking of like creative things I could do to really, there's two things I want to do. I want to make a film and I want to go travel. And, and how can you make those things something that is in your control? Yes. That's the big question. That's what I'm walking away with. And that's what I'm going to ask myself and, and, and aim to figure out over the, over the course of the next, until the next podcast is really like, hunker down and kind of look at that. It's like, what's in my control that I can do right now that will allow me to live my life. Cause I feel like there is a real seduction to not live your life right now, but to wait until everything's ready until wait till you have the resources, wait till you have the tools. Yeah. I know that I've fallen into it a little bit myself. And so I'm going to take this opportunity to stop that pattern and start doing like, what can I do right now to start living my life the way I want right now and not waiting that's in my control. Yeah. As you said, yeah. And doing more of the things that I want to do. Yep. Cool. All right. Another good one. Shelby. Another good one. That was our show for today. Thanks a lot for listening and being a part of this. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends and family, or you can learn more and message us at www.thebndpodcast.com. Oh, and make sure to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes. That will really help us out a lot. It definitely will. Thanks.